Good morning again. Uh, if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 59, uh, our sermon text this morning is Genesis 49, sorry, 49, uh, 8 through 12. It's, uh, it's one uh, prophecy in the middle of a whole series of them. Uh, Jacob is blessing his sons, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, and he works his way through each one of them, and we're going to focus in on the, the blessing on Judah this morning. Hopefully, uh, it will be for obvious reasons. Uh, but I'll go ahead and read all of Genesis 49 uh, to give you a little bit of the context and some of the other blessings that are found there. But before I do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you to hear your voice. Uh, we come to you to receive your grace, to, uh, to be reminded again of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to be encouraged in him and refreshed in him. We pray that you would speak to us as we hear your word, as I read, as I speak. I pray that you would give me the words to say, words to uh, point to Jesus and encourage your people. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, uh, that we would hear and believe and receive and understand and ultimately trust and delight in our Savior Jesus. Be with us uh, now. Again, we pray by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch." Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, 
Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who has set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. We'll stop there. Well, some of you probably know the, uh, the, the claymation movie Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Uh, it came out in, in 1970. And the bad guy in that movie, you may know, is Burgermeister Meisterburger. And uh, Burgermeister Meisterburger is this grumpy dictator type who rules over Sombertown. And he's angry because he tripped over a toy duck and broke his foot, and so he's outlawed all toys. Now, this is actually kind of a common figure in Christmas stories, right? This authority figure who outlaws fun. Uh, No toys, no tinsel, and certainly no singing. Now, to be sure, uh, there was a kind of grumpy ruler in the real Christmas story, King Herod. Uh, But I think our use of this figure in pop culture uh, says probably more about our dislike of authority than our reliance on biblical character types. (laughs) See, I think we have this view that authority and joy are incompatible. Or put it differently, obedience and joy are incompatible. Uh, We think that authority, especially strong authority, necessarily leads to oppression and depression like Burgermeister Meisterburger. We may even picture God as kind of this cruel parent figure who doesn't want us to have any fun. He just gets in, in, in the way of our fun by all of his rules. We think joy and celebration are found when we relax the rules and ignore authority and do what we want to do. Because if you want to be happy, follow your heart, after all. Let me put it another way. There's a a children's catechism question. uh, In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And the answer is he made them happy and holy. Now, for some reason, the first few times I heard that question, those two things didn't sit right with me. They didn't seem to go together happy and holy. What do you think? Do those two things go together in your mind? I I wonder, uh, if you're honest with yourself, if if there's a little bit of reservation in your heart 
Can real joy go hand in hand with strong authority? Do those things go together? Can you be happy by being holy? Can satisfaction be found in obedience? I certainly hope it can, because what God promises here in our text is that a king is coming, and he will subdue his enemies and rule the nations and bring abundance and joy. So those two things, God is saying, go hand in hand. So our outline this morning, we're going to look at four things. It's really one exhortation and three reasons for that exhortation. Uh, The first point, bow your knee to King Jesus. That's the exhortation. And then the three reasons are because of his love, because it's his right, and for the sake of your joy. So if you want to follow along, you can find that outline on the back of your bulletin. Bow your knee to King Jesus because of his love, because it's his right, and for the sake of your joy. Now, the the context of these few verses that we're going to look at is, of course, the whole book of Genesis first. Genesis is a book of beginnings, right? It's it's why, uh, why we're preaching through the book of Genesis during this Advent season is to show in part that Jesus is not an afterthought to God's plan, but he's the culmination of what the Father had planned from the start. The Genesis story, with all of its ups and downs, ends with God's promise uh, to Abraham being fulfilled. At least in part, the childless Abraham had become a nation, a small one maybe, uh, 70 people, but a nation nonetheless. And Abraham's grandson Jacob, renamed Israel, has 12 sons, each with families of their own, who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, uh, one of the great themes of the book of Genesis is, is God's blessing. Uh, and how that blessing is passed on from generation to generation. So you may remember in the very beginning, God blessed humanity and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And yet you turn over a few pages and get to Genesis 3 and the fall, uh, the rebellion of uh, mankind, however, brought not blessing but curse. Nevertheless, though, God gave his created blessing to Noah and Noah's sons as well. We find this same blessing repeated. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Then God blessed one particular descendant of Noah, Abraham. Abraham's son Isaac blessed his son Jacob, passing along the blessing to Jacob. And now in Genesis 49, Jacob is passing along the blessing to his sons. And this blessing uh, here in Genesis 49 takes the form of a prophecy, right? Again, look at uh, chapter 49, verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And while Joseph is clearly the main character in the last quarter of the book of Genesis, uh, nevertheless, Judah is the one, or Judah is the tribe, that gets the farthest reaching blessing. Look at the blessing. Uh, We're going to look at that blessing verse by verse, beginning with verse 8. And our first point is bow your knee to King Jesus. Now, again, we don't really like the thought of bowing our knee to anybody. I mean, we did away with kings a long time ago in our country. And uh, we've democratized society, right? We've done our best to do away with social hierarchies. Uh, We've failed at that, maybe. uh, But, of course, we've tried. Um, we We don't like obedience, we don't even like the word obedience, because we like our autonomy, right? That is, we want to rule ourselves, not be ruled by others. 
Uh, now, there's a sense in which uh, th there's a good impulse in there. That is that we reject the idea of oppression by authority figures. We're, we're skeptical about the misuse of authority. But we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater and reject not just the misuse, but authority itself. Yet, nevertheless, God's promise to Judah is that people would bow before him. Verse 8 says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Uh, there are three promises there. Uh, one, that his brothers would praise him. Two, that his enemies would be subdued before him. And three, that his brothers would bow before him. That is, their praise would turn into action. And notice sort of the comprehensiveness here of who is, who is submitting to Judah, right? Both his brothers and his enemies, <laughs> those closest to him and those farthest away. And the point is all people. God is promising to Judah that all peoples would bow before him. You actually see that in verse 10 later, where he says, uh, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. Now, uh, Jesus, you may know, is of the tribe of Judah. In fact, he's of the line of David, the king. And this is what is said of Jesus later, by Paul, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, what is promised to Judah back in Genesis 49, the first book of the Bible, is also promised of Jesus, a king in the line of Judah, in Philippians chapter 2. Oddly enough, when, when Paul says that of Jesus, when he uh, says that in Philippians 2. He's quoting God speaking in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes we forget about this when we read that passage in Philippians 2. It's actually a quote from the Old Testament. Isaiah 45, where God says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So Paul takes the words of God about himself and applies them to King Jesus. Because, of course, Jesus is not only the son of David in the line of Judah, but he's also the son of God, deity in human skin. So Jesus is this king who comes in the line of Judah, whose enemies would be subdued and whose brothers will all bow before him. Now, when Jacob speaks of bowing before Judah, he, he doesn't mean an act that's somehow disconnected from life. Uh, you can imagine a scenario uh, in medieval times or something when someone bows before a king, and leaves the throne room, and proceeds to curse the same king behind his back, maybe even start a revolt. That kind of a bow is a show, right? It's a sham. It's hypocrisy. It's false. But Jacob promises Judah in verse 10 that to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. See, when we talk about bowing our knee to King Jesus, we don't mean simply a gesture on Sunday morning that I honor him as king on Sunday and then live for myself through the rest of the week. Rather, we, we mean obedience. God calls me, God calls you to obey King Jesus. And to do that, of course, we must know what Jesus calls us to do. Uh, which actually is, is what the Great Commission is about. Uh, you may remember the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28. Uh, we tend to use that to talk, to, to, um, to talk about spreading the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Of course, we are to do that. 
But that's not actually what Matthew 28 says. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 19, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? He's the king. Go therefore and make disciples, learners, followers, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, it's interesting, the Great Commission, as given in Matthew 28, is to make followers of Jesus by one, baptizing them, and two, teaching them to obey what he has commanded, because he's the king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so this is at least part of our job as a church, right? As a community, it's together to learn the will of Jesus and encourage one another to do it, to live in obedience to our king. And so bow your knee to King Jesus. Live in obedience to him, right? Give your life to him. But why ought you to do that? Reason number one, because of his love. Uh, look at verse nine. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Verse 9 is about power. Uh, the lion is a powerful animal. It's right. It's used as a symbol of power throughout Scripture. Uh, David uses the lion as an example of an animal that is fierce, like his enemy, the giant Goliath. Uh, when he laments the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he says they were stronger than lions. Lions tear and prowl and roar throughout the Bible. Enemies are often characterized as lions surrounding God's people against whom they are helpless. Proverbs 20 verse 2 says, The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Proverbs 30, verse 30 says, The lion is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. And so Judah is compared to a lion, right? Strong and fierce. Who dares rouse him, Jacob says. Judah will have power. We respect people with power, right? We, we want a ruler who is strong, who commands respect. But we misunderstand power and authority and what they're for. See, Jesus, as God, had all power, but he used that power to become weak in order to serve those who are weak. See, the conquering lion, Revelation tells us, was a sacrificial lamb. He used his power to serve. And, and while this might be counterintuitive for us, right, you don't see our president washing the feet of the White House staff. So while this is counterintuitive, the very purpose of power is to serve. This is true whether you have the power of the president or the abilities of a janitor. God has given you your position, your power, your strength, your ability to serve. Power is meant to be used for service, for love. Jesus used his power to serve, right? So we, we might use our power to serve. Uh, to serve someone is another name for loving them. Uh, after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he, he told his disciples to love one another as he loved them. Later, Jesus said in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, than, than someone lay down his life for his friend. See, we can, we can love Jesus, we can serve him, we can obey him, because he first served us. You know the, the passage in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Jesus as king loved us by serving. We as his subjects love through obedience. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But if you don't know the love of Jesus, you cannot love Jesus or therefore obey him rightly. We love because he first loved us. You know, we resent people often who have power over us, especially if, when they use that power for their own good at our expense. But Jesus used his power for our good at his expense. That is love. The one who loved you to the point of death, the one who gave his all for you, he is the one who is worthy of your love and obedience. Let his love woo you to love and obey. And so bow your knee to King Jesus because of his love. Reason number two, because it's his right. Uh, we, we live in a society, again, which elects its rulers. And of course, that's not wrong, but sometimes we miss the fact that once elected, those rulers have authority because God has given it to them. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, whether that is uh, civil authority or parental authority or church authority, right? every authority that exists has been instituted by God. And that means both that God has instituted this structure of authority and that God has set up this particular ruler, this particular parent, this particular elder, whoever it happens to be. Uh, Daniel 2.21 uh, says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God's the one who puts rulers in their place. The angel it, later in uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's dream agrees with this. Daniel 4.17, he says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Jacob prophesies that one from Judah would be given all authority. First, he, he uses uh, two images of authority, the, the scepter and the ruler's staff in verse 10, the first half of verse 10 at least. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He says that these things belong to Judah, and even one particular Judahite, right, uh, uh, who has the staff between his feet. So there's one particular person in the line of Judah that Jacob has in mind uh, who would have the ruler's staff. And they are his... Jacob says, until tribute comes. Now, until here doesn't mean once the tribute comes, these things are no longer his. That's not what it means. Uh, but probably more that these things are his by right until they will finally be his in reality. See, they will be his until finally tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Tribute here is a sign of, of people honoring him as king, and obedience is the result then of their submission to him. Psalm 72 uh, similarly pictures a day when this Jewish king will rule the nations. Psalm 72 says, may, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. See, these prophecies, both in Genesis 49 and Psalm 72, throughout the Old Testament, there are these prophecies and foreshadows of a king in the line of Judah who would come and rule over the nations. 
And they have begun to be fulfilled in Jesus of the tribe of Judah. At Christmas time, you know, and at Epiphany, we often think about the wise men, right, who came to see Jesus. We have a song about it that we sometimes sing even. These were wealthy men who brought gifts as tribute to King Jesus. But of course, that was just the beginning. To him belongs the obedience of the peoples. And so the, those, those wise men that we think about at Christmas time are just a small picture of the fact that the nations, all the nations, will come and give honor to King Jesus. You know, Jesus came, he tells us in, in Mark 10, Jesus came not to be served but to serve with the result that he is served. Uh, Jesus became a servant that he might rise a king. When Jesus rose from the dead, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's one of those counterintuitive things, right? Uh, it's like, you know, if you're willing to be phony to get people to like you, often they'll see through that and not like you because you're being phony. And so in order to get people to like you, you have to stop trying to get people to like you. You know, that's, that's kind of the way it works. Uh, similarly, right, Jesus says, uh, if, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, then you'll find it. Right? So those things that, just, that, that don't quite make sense at first. Uh, this is one of those things. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve with the result that God exalted him to the highest place. He is now ruler over all. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, in the resurrection, the Father gave the Son authority. In his ascension, Jesus began to reign. And Ephesians talks about it like this. It talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, which is according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. You see, the, the great Christian message is that Jesus Christ is Lord. God the Father has given his incarnate Son authority over all things. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus as King is, is restoring order to the world of men and women. As people come back under submission to Jesus, the world is put right. Sin is undone. Enmity is done away with, right? Reconciliation takes place. Peace is restored. Uh, the world is being reordered, uh, restored to its original harmony, and the peoples give him, uh, as the peoples give him their best, their tribute, and their obedience. See, Jesus is the king who is restoring order to society. That has begun in the church, but that will come to completion when every knee bows and every tongue confesses on the last day. And so we, we bow our knee to King Jesus, uh, not only first and foremost because of his love, right? because of his work in his death and resurrection on the cross for sin, but also because it's his right. He is Lord. But there's a third reason, reason number three, and that's for the sake of your joy. And here's the point maybe that, that I want to stress most this morning, that, that you know, we, we talk a lot about joy at Christmas. Uh, true Christmas joy is found bowing before our King. The one who brings order is also the one who brings joy. Uh, the ruler is also the master of the feast. Uh, joy can only be found as we find our place in God's world. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily what people say is our place, right? But what God says is our place. It's his world after all. We do all have a place in his world, but whatever that place is, we are not the king. Jesus is Lord. 
When Adam played the king in the garden, he made a mess out of the world, right? The very ground itself was broken. Thorns and thistles came where fruits and vegetables were supposed to have been. This world became a place uh, not of joy, but of sorrow. We experience our own brokenness and that of others. We sin and are sinned against. We hope and are disappointed. We work and have nothing to show for it. We love and are wronged. We try and we fail. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. Thorns and thistles where fruits and veggies should have been. But look at the language of verse 11. Verse 11 says this about this king to come, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, there's a a lot of imagery packed into that little verse. Uh, Sometimes in Scripture, riding donkeys is actually a sign of royalty. You'll remember Jesus, of course, rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But the main point here is actually not about the donkeys, but where the donkeys are tied. They're tied to the vine, even the choice vine. That means the best vine in the vineyard, which really means two things. One, it means the choice vine is strong, right? It's strong enough to hold the donkey, which says something about the health and the size of the vine. Uh, But it also means that this king must have had an abundance of choice vines. Think about it. You don't want to tie your donkey to your vine because what's the donkey going to do? He's going to eat all your grapes. He's going to trample them down under his feet. This king must have had an abundance of vines. Otherwise, he wouldn't leave his donkey there to eat its grapes. Here's what the imagery is saying. There will be so many grapes, such a fruitful harvest, uh, such a fruitful vineyard that it won't matter if the donkeys eat even the best of them because there'll be so many more. Grapes have replaced thorns and thistles. A vineyard has replaced the desert. The remainder of the verse emphasizes the same point, right? He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Can you imagine having so much wine at your house that you use it to wash your clothes? That's a lot of wine. Verse 12, even. uh, Similarly, while, while it could be saying something about the beauty of this person, it's actually more likely also about the abundance of wine and milk, it adds, and its effect on this king, right? While the ESV reads, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk, uh, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, says his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk, or the King James Version says his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. And uh, the point is actually, again, that the abundance of wine has affected his eyes. Uh, The abundance of milk has affected his teeth. The similar language is actually used in the Proverbs in a negative sense. Uh, Proverbs 23 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. So Proverbs uses actually the same kind of language, but in a negative way. And the writer of Genesis knows that the dangers of wine, right? Wine figures into a couple of significant stories of sin in this book. Uh, Noah creates a vineyard, which I think was good. He makes wine, which was good. But he gets drunk and lays naked and exposed in his tent, which was bad. Uh, Lot's daughters get him to drink wine, you may remember, so that they can sin with him. And yet, despite the known dangers of wine, the the picture here uh, of restoration and abundance includes an abundance of wine. 
The writer knows that there's something good about it. Psalm 104 tells us what that is when it says God created plants that man might make wine to gladden his heart. That's what Psalm 104 verse 15 says. The purpose of wine is to gladden the heart of man. And so the, the picture that this prophecy gives us is one of abundance and gladness. God is restoring the world through his Judean king that he might bring joy to the world. Jesus comes to give us joy. He, he gives us joy, of course, in his saving work, right? That he loved us so much that he bore our sins and died in our place, that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and guilt and death and hell, reconciling us to the Father, granting us the forgiveness of sins and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also gives us hope, right? The hope of a restored world, the hope of abundance to come, uh, the hope of choice vines and wine so abundant you use it to wash your dirty clothes, time of joy and celebration, a time very similar to a wedding feast. It's the way the Bible pictures it very often, right? When we will celebrate and feast at the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we will see Him face to face, when we will know intimacy with the Father through the Son in a way that we cannot now imagine. And while the fullest of that has yet to come, it has begun, right? Jesus bore witness to that in His first miracle. You remember His first miracle? Recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus was at a wedding in Cana. They ran out of wine. And Jesus has them fill six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And they fill them to the brim, we're told. And then Jesus turns the water into wine. Good wine, so says the master of the feast. By the way, that's about 150 gallons of wine. Uh, and remember, that was after they ran out. What's the point? The point is about abundance and celebration. The Messiah's kingdom will be a kingdom of abundance and celebration. Jesus brings a kingdom of joy, which means real joy will only be found bowing our knee to this king. He's the king who brings joy. Now, sometimes we get this wrong. Uh, we're like teenagers, right, who, who uh, we, we know what we want to do. But our parents say you have to do A, B, and C before you can do X, Y, and Z. And you know what you do, right? You do your chores as quickly as possible, not to please your parent, not to delight in obedience, but to get, what you, but, but to get that done so that you can move on to what you want to do, right? So you can have some fun. Sometimes our goal in life is to obey God just enough so he'll get off our back so we can move on and have some fun. We have not really submitted ourselves to King Jesus. We're still seeking our joy in something else. We certainly can't imagine joy in obedience. But Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and I delight to do your will, O God. His delight was in obeying his Father. You see, joy is not simply found if we bow our knee, as in, if, if I bow my knee, then I can get the goodies. Joy is found in bowing our knee, right? We are, we are creatures made to delight in bowing before our Father, bowing before our Creator. If that seems odd to you, and I admit it's, it definitely seems a little odd at first, uh, maybe it's because we don't yet understand the, the depth of His love, the depth of His goodness and care for us, and the beauty of authority when it's used to serve, as Jesus did. May you come to see King Jesus for all that he is, the beauty of his authority used to serve. 
Bow your knee to King Jesus because of his love, because it's his right, and for the sake of your joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that you would turn our hearts toward you, that we would find delight in serving you, our God and King, uh, that that would be our joy, uh, that it would be our food, as Jesus says. Father, uh, draw us near to you and give us joy in you and in the King that you have set up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.